0: Hey, everybody. My name is Justin Murphy, and this is my podcast. It's called Other Life because it's where I talk about all the things I don't get to talk about in normal life. So if you're into it, you should definitely subscribe. And if you'd like to talk to other people interested in what I'm interested in or ask me questions or request future topics or guests, please just follow the link in the show notes. Finally, I just want to give a huge thanks to all the donors and patrons. I could not keep this podcast running without financial backers, so I'm very grateful. And I would just say that if you enjoy this podcast or my blog or my videos, please do consider signing up to give a little bit of money each month. It would really help me grow out this project, and it would mean a lot to me. So thanks a lot. Now, on to the podcast. Over and out. So, uh, Mr. Lovecraft, or what should I call you? Uh, You can call you zero okay zero Zero. so zero what's your story more generally why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself
1: i am really no one special uh i just have a lot of thoughts and uh one day i started writing down and it turns out people on twitter seem to like hearing me over time uh you end up with a feedback loop between yourself and the people who are listening to you and a personality develops. I wouldn't say that it's exactly the same as the person that I am in my real life. There's some drift there. People contain multiplicities.
2: Mm.
0: Right. So you're saying that, uh, okay, people can hear. So that's good. Interesting. So you would say that you're the person you represent as zero Love zero HP Lovecraft and the person you you are behind the scenes that there is that there is a significant gap between those two. Do you ever lose track of of the two? Absolutely. Um, if you read, so there's a story by Borges, which is one of my favorites, called "Borges and I." And in that story, he talks about
1: Borges, the writer, and he says, "I have never met this man. I hear stories about him. I read about him." in you know literary reviews but i don't know who he is and in the story he meets he sees himself from a distance and i don't get me wrong there are facts of me that are exactly as i present on the internet but at the same time i do feel there is some distance there
0: okay and so when when did you first start writing on the internet
1: I have been lurking in dissident and strange spaces for over a decade now, but I, I never quite felt that I had a voice or that I had anything to say until a couple of years ago I started writing this story, The Gig Economy, and I thought maybe 20 people would read it and it was full of esoteric references to neo-reaction and accelerationist thought. And then something like thirty thousand people read it and uh yes I was taken by surprise
0: okay so that essay you wrote on the gig economy was that was kind of your breakthrough hit
1: yes that was my uh
0: my debut if you like could you for listeners who might not be familiar with that essay could you give us a quick recap
1: uh yes so the story uh it's actually structurally based on the call of Cthulhu by Lovecraft, of course. And I had read a story translated by Akira, who I think you've had on here, uh, called "The Flock of Bahui." And I can't say Chinese words, but it's a it's an extremely sort of formulaic adaptation of Lovecraft with Chinese characteristics. And it occurred to me, oh, you can just copy something else with slight variations. So I envisioned this story about uh about creatures, virtual monsters living on a blockchain that would then sort of co opt services like Fiverr or Mechanical Turk and use it to pay people in microtransactions to do all kinds of arcane esoteric things for some evil purpose. And instead of uh, a monster like a, like a Cthulhu or an Azathoth, my monster is this kind of digital assemblage, kind of a paperclip maximizer, really. It's the idea that what if in this network where decisions can be made automatically, a brain could form and take control of humanity? Mm. And that, of course, ends up being a metaphor for capital at the same time.
2: Mm.
0: Okay. And is this how you see things playing out in reality or how much of that is fiction?
1: I think that accelerationism primarily is an eschatology and it's not necessarily the case that anything in eschatology will ever actually happen. But eschatology is about how we relate to the far future and it sort of contextualizes us. In the world and in the now so it's not just accelerationism is not just oh there could be a singularity and afterwards you end up with some kind of like post scarcity i don't know ultra modern total divorce of sign uh, of signifier and signify it it's actually two possibilities it's the heaven and the hell so accelerationism doesn't come without sort of 0 act or without decelerationism. It's like either you build God or you fail to build God and people just kind of keep on being cavemen and eventually revert to, like, shit-slinging monkeys. Hmm. So it's, it's not even about now. It's not about saying this will happen. It's about heaven or hell.
0: I, I'm interested in that perspective. Let's talk a little bit more about that. Are you a religious man yourself?
1: Yes, and was raised christian uh in fact i am the son of a preacher and i have a sort of urge like tick you could say i can't not preach whether to zero people or 10 people to myself when i walk you know uh just around town to the bus i give sermons in my head to no one so but i don't believe in god not not in the
2: in any kind of supernatural
0: sense. Mm. But you take the accelerationist model seriously. So in some sense, is the accelerationist model not a kind of secularized scientific version of a Christian eschatology? Oh, it's certainly that. Yes. Right. So, I mean, uh, my, my, my view on that is that if I actually think that if you're a serious accelerationist and, and that's really how you see, uh, that's how you model kind of long-term historical dynamics, then you essentially do, you essentially are a Christian in some sense. I would say, uh, there are
1: forms of Christianity that are not specifically, uh, supernatural or not specifically theistic Mm. as much as that sounds like a contradiction. I'm not holding my breath for an AI takeoff. I'll put it that way. Hmm.
0: Right, right. Well, I mean, my take on that, without going down a rabbit hole on about my own opinions, just briefly, I, I would say that I th- what I tend to think about that is, you know, the ancient world religions were developed in a time when scientific vocabularies just didn't exist, right? People just didn't know, and so what we call supernaturalism um, is really, I think, just a kind of artifact of the the simple reality that, you know, in the time when Christianity was first generated socially and culturally. Uh, of course, they're going to use language that later we will look at as supernatural. But really, it was just the best words they could come up with at the time, with their relatively limited understanding of of how empirical reality works from a scientific sci- from a scientific perspective. So, what I tend to think actually is that um, these kind of secularized, uh, consistent with science models of of long range historical change, especially especially around intelligence development and and capitalism and ideas of the singularity and all of this uh super intelligence takeoffs these are essentially models that are perfectly consistent with a lot of the christian models um it's just we do it in a different language because we know so much more now um but it's not i actually think the distinction between like scientific and supernatural is actually kind of like overhyped and um if you, th- if you believe in something like the singularity, you essentially believe that we are living in end times then we are soon going to meet our maker.
1: Well, sort of, I, I think that may be doing a disservice actually to, to people who authentically believe in, in God or in Buddha, if you like, any, any kind of, of deity, because, you know, transcendent experiences, to me, have you ever done, uh, psychedelic mushrooms or acid yeah yeah both yeah so you you can have these experiences not just by doing drugs i mean you can get it in a crowd uh when everyone's really excited and you can get it by fasting and you can get it by going out into the woods for 48 hours and not speaking to anyone you can have these transcendent experiences and i think to some people probably you certainly to me um we can sort of write those experiences off as being something internal something that's maybe an artifact of the brain or biology but i think to people who, who really believe to people who genuinely are convicted and i i don't think as many people are as convicted as they think they are but to people who really believe they can't write off those transcendent experiences like they literally can't do it it would be like asking them to uh add you know two and two and get five. Like, it's just, it's not, it's unconscionable to sort of say these experiences, these transcendent feelings or, or you know, noumena to say, oh, that's just, that's just an artifact of the brain. So I think hmm. people really do believe and I think that uh, it's, it's kind of a, a recency bias or a, a, a bias from where we sit to say, oh, this is just how we conceive of, of the world Julian is something quite like the way we do. Are you familiar with Julian James?
0: Did you say Julian James?
1: James. James. I think that's his name, right?
0: I'm not sure that I am. Uh,
1: So, the uh, origin of consciousness in the breakdown of the bicameral mind.
0: Have you heard of this word? Okay, I've heard of that, yeah.
1: Yeah, so I don't know if I believe it. I think it's something that no one quite knows if they believe. He thought that there was a time maybe in recent history, you know, when we experienced our conscience, a part of ourselves, as a distinctly different person. And he thinks that, for example, when uh, the Israelites hear the voice of God, when Moses, uh, you know, hears God, or when Abraham hears God, maybe there's literally, in his phenomenology, a second being there. And for in, in I'm not sure I I'm endorsing this as true, but in the sort of Janesian conception, it's like maybe your maybe part of you you really experience as someone else. And a lot of people today experience the idea of like, oh, there's a voice inside me that they don't quite identify with. And what if that was just more?
0: Hmm. A good question. Yeah, that's interesting. Wait, so real quick, just to circle back a little bit, I suspect you're a very secretive person, it seems, uh, so I don't want to pry, but can I ask you simple things about kind of who you are, like how old you are, or very roughly where you live? Could you tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: I live on the West Coast, and I am in my 30s.
0: Okay, What, what, uh, what kind of profession or occupation are you in, roughly, could you say?
1: Yes, I am a software engineer. And I think that's probably pretty evident. Uh, I approach the world in a very mechanistic way, in an engineering sort of a frame.
0: Okay. Do you do you hang out in real life with anyone that we might know from the internet? No. I don't. So you, you're not you're not so you don't socially mix with any of the the West Coast reactionary people. Uh, I see these things as sort
1: of non-overlapping magisteria, to borrow a phrase.
0: Interesting. So that you're not saying that you don't hang out with them. You're saying that you see your you know, in-person social circles as very distinct and separate from your internet circles?
1: Yes, I like to maintain that separation, partly because it maintains info security. The less people know about one identity, the harder it is for them to accidentally lead over and I think that you can only speak truth and I'm not saying everything I say is the truth, far from it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you can only speak honestly, let's say that if you are if you are not accountable to to your face and your repu- reputation no offense, but as soon as, soon as reputation bleeds over into your real identity, there are is a web of of complicated obligations and ah, social niceties. And there's a whole sort of algebra of how, how you can behave relative to others. So anonymity, I think is very freeing.
0: Yeah. I've had this debate with many people before, and it's a, I think it's a, a genuinely interesting question. Uh, you know, I've always said, I think there are perfectly fine reasons to go the kind of radically anonymous route. I think trying to speak the truth, honestly and courageously, uh, in public in a way that's associated with your own name also has its own unique benefits and 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 attractions not just um, you know strategically but in terms of in terms of what you're able to say and how you're able to say it so you know i think the 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 most significant retort to what you're saying is that the problem or the drawback of being an, an anonymous figure is that you, you might feel like you're speaking the truth in a way that's more liberated than what someone like me might be able to say or do but i think the weight or the impact of the words that are coming from an anonymous avatar are are significantly decreased is is one of the trade offs i think that's that's at work so you know when you put your name on something and you pay the price for speaking some sort of truth uh it, it 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 hits people in a different kind of way and i think it kind of impacts the social web of beliefs uh in in a in a more impactful way so the way i think about it is it's trade offs you know there there are different games one can play with one's words and one with one's public interventions and whether you choose to do that anonymously or um you know with your own face i think uh they're just slightly different games with different trade-offs and i think they suit different types of temperaments differently also
1: i think that's true there are people i think people put too much sock in the idea of the overton window but basically the difference is are you inside it or are you outside it as long as as you put your face and your name on your words, then there's more control. But if you ever want to convert virtual cloud into real cloud, you have to do break a
0: boundary. That is true. Right, right. So yeah, no, I think I think it's interesting how people pursue different strategies. And I, I've had this kind of back and forth with people about this. I think there are pros and cons on both sides. Maybe you could tell us a little bit more about horror and and horrorism. And maybe for people listening who don't know that much about kind of the world you're coming from, wh- you know, what what does horror mean to you? And, and, and you know, why is why is it interesting and worth paying attention to?
1: So it may come as a surprise that I'm not a huge connoisseur uh, literature or horror uh, movies or anything like that. I do quite enjoy the work of H.P. Lovecraft. But uh, my idea of horrorism comes from an old post on Xeno systems, which I would encourage everyone to read. And uh, Nick Land sort of describes horrorism like this. He says, what is to be done? Well, he says the horrorist message is nothing that you are doing can possibly work. And the, the answer to what is to be done is nothing. Your progressive practice will come to naught. Despair subside into horror. You can prevent, to pre- you can pretend to prevail in antagonism against us, but reality is your true and fatal enemy. Despair. So that's perhaps a bit of bravado, but mm-hmm. it is the the ins- inspiration for the term.
0: Yeah, I figured as much, and you know, I always interpreted that to mean that horrorism is kind of, it's kind of like a, almost like a stoic practice to kind of subject yourself to, uh, you know, really painful realities to kind of actively cultivate, um, a kind of hardness or, or insensitivity to horror as a way of, as almost like an ethical mode for navigating, uh, you know, the increasing horrors that are coming down the pike of global capitalism. Is that kind of how you see it or no?
1: See capitalism, I think that term is poorly defined. I think very few people even know what they mean when they speak of capitalism. But it does seem that as the as we live in this in this internet world where we can just see everything at all times, everything is constantly horrible. And there's no getting around it, there's no turning it off, and nothing you can do, nothing you can say can make the horror go away it's just yes it's a kind of pacifism that's
0: true yeah well i think a lot of horrors today are actually self-inflicted by people who can't tolerate the horror of reality so i always kind of understood the appeal of horrorism what nick calls horrorism i always kind of understood that as you know people should just adapt themselves to the horror of reality so that they stop doing all these kinds of uh, doomed, neurotic self-mutilations on top of it.
1: Well, that's, that's the real horror, though, is that they can't. Like, mm. the, things, the things that compel us to do horrific things are not substantively in our control. I mm. think if you feel a certain way, or if you have a certain inclination, you know, we think it's a it's a heroic overcoming of will, but really, when self-discipline or or self-modulation is the triumph of one emotion over another. And I do think that there are good and bad sort of self-overcomings. But I don't think most people have a choice. I don't think, oh, everyone wakes up, everyone gets woke, everyone just reads the philosophy of perhaps Justin Murphy, and suddenly it's all better. Right.
0: Wouldn't that be nuts? Right, sure. Okay, that's interesting. So you're kind of saying that the horror goes even deeper, perhaps, than than I was I was saying. Now, what, could you tell us a little bit about H.P. Lovecraft and what, what is your interest in H.P. Lovecraft? You know, obviously, you must be very interested in Lovecraft because you've kind of wrapped your, your identity around him. So tell us a little bit about why you've done that. You know, I do enjoy his work quite a bit.
1: I think that there is a pop Lovecraft. There is, you know, Cthulhu plushies and uh silly like you know cute monsters lovecraftian monsters that get passed around medically and viral and that's all people really know of lovecraft and most people average people when they go a little bit deeper they learn what his cat was named and they learn about some of the metaphors that were really informing his fiction and they go oh my god we can't like this person he's horrible he's unacceptable i Enjoy all of his stories. I think that there is a lot of truth in them. I came in several facets. I like his sort of he's very biblical. So if you read his work and his advice to other writers, he actually suggests reading the King James Bible. And I think this is an incredible piece of advice. I think the King James Bible is one of them well I don't think any serious person can ignore this book. I think if you haven't read the Bible, and I especially like the language in King James, I especially like its, its sort of majesty and its poetry. Then you're missing a huge part of the puzzle of, of what Western thought is. You're missing a part of your heritage. You're missing something that's just central to, to America and to really just this entire cultural milieu we're in. Mm. So I like that. And he's also a myth maker, and partly because he has so much respect for something like the King James Bible. He's able to think about the universe as this indifferent uh, kind of thing. He's grappling with the implications of a fully mechanistic kind of enlightenment science model of the universe and coming up, metaphorizing it as horror. So instead of looking at, at the universe and seeing maybe a God who loves you, he comes up with Azathoth as the ultimate gibbering horror. At the end of the universe, Azathoth is blind. He's an idiot. He doesn't know you're there. He doesn't even care. He's just pure hunger, pure rage, pure chaos. And that's kind of the ultimate nature of reality for Lovecraft. Mm. So, I, I appreciate that orientation as
0: well. So, was Lovecraft himself a reactionary?
1: I don't think that our political categories would have been legible to Lovecraft at the time. But I think if you explained reaction to him, he would have said he would have been sympathetic.
0: Interesting. So do you know much about his actual political views or was he involved at all? Or did he, did he write about his political and social views much at all? I I know very little about his life and attitudes
1: deeper than I have on that topic. I think I recommended on Compost podcast reading the Radish Mag article on H.P. Lovecraft and it goes into his personal life and his views. He was, I I did not say he was politically active, no, but he was a politic writer. Yes, he did hate immigrants, avant-garde student. He kind of had left his country home and gone to the city, and he was horrified by what he saw there. Really, he was horrified by the diversity, and then he went back home uh, to his sort of rural New England hamlet, and he was disgusted to find that it too had been taken over by uh, sporty foreigners, and so you can find this view when he talks about like fish people, or when he talks about uh, you know some of these, like the Innsmouth horror, if you read that a lot of his monsters are just disfigured people on their metaphors. They're, they're allegories of people who immigrated to the U S.
0: Wow. That's dark. So there yes. are some questions I, about pieces of work by H.P. Lovecraft. Uh, does that interest you or maybe skip those? Uh, I have, I, I got a couple from Twitter also, and there's at least one in the chat. Do you want to talk a little bit about his works or do you want to maybe just go on to more general topics? Um,
1: I thought there were some cool questions on Twitter. I think the person asking about the rats in the walls is being facetious. Okay. Um, I cannot recall the story pick model,
0: though I probably did read it. There was also a question on Twitter about um, what do you think of the quote-unquote placid
1: island of ignorance? Uh, So this, I believe, is a reference to the beginning of the Call of Cthulhu where the claim is that if, well, he says the most merciful thing in the world is the inability of the human mind to correlate its contents, something like that. Mm. So if we ever could sort of put all the pieces together in the world we observe, that we'd completely go mad, we'd be completely horrified, because the world is so terrible and so vile, and there's such evil and chaos lurking, you know, beyond. Our comprehension that it would just unmake us—it's harmful perceptions, hmm. and uh, yeah, I think that's basically true.
0: So that we enjoy placid islands of ignorance is the idea.
1: That I think there are ideas that are true that most people would have trouble hearing, and there are ideas that are true that all people would have trouble hearing. Yes.
0: Yeah, you know, it's kind of interesting to think about the modern left as a as a social formation in some sense. It it often seems like the the major tenets of contemporary leftism are basically like prohibitions on talking about certain uh all too horrifying realities. Or realities that are too horrifying for leftists, in other words. That it's this kind of like consensual group agreement to not allow under any conditions certain possible empirical patterns to be acknowledged as such a kind of uh like consensual uh pact to look away from certain things that uh, left-wing temperaments find horrifying is that how you read it
1: yes it's it's curious what exactly is the cause of that on the one hand we have this idea It might just be pure status jockeying. Like, everyone really knows the truth about all the horrible things that you can hear on frog Twitter, and it's just not politically expedient to acknowledge it, basically. Like, if you say it, you'll alienate voters. If you say it, then you'll hurt people's feelings. And there's just enough people whose feelings are just sensitive enough that they can exert social power. So maybe everyone knows. Maybe it's not a denial of reality so much as a kind of willful blind spot. Mm. Or maybe people are just stupid and insane.
0: Yeah, right. That is a good, that is an interesting question, right? Like the, so if you look at something like the taboo on something really quite simple and and even relatively benign, in my opinion, like uh, psychological sex differences, for instance. Uh, If you take this as as an example or case study, like the, the question you're kind of posing is, is the taboo against speaking about psychological sex differences because deep down leftists know that those patterns are true, but they find them horrifying and dangerous and bad. So it's like people know they're true, but we have to prohibit people from talking about it because then bad things will happen. Or is it a kind of deeper denialism in which all of the, the prohibitionism and, and and taboo intensity Is actually doing the work of 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 making people not believe it, like allowing leftists to to genuinely keep their 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 mental experience free from this type of 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 accepting this type of pattern. That is a kind of that's like pretty like hard to measure. It's it's hard to imagine how you would be able to tease that out. But it is actually a really good question about this underlying psychology. Right.
1: So uh, a personal a couple thoughts on that that I have. One is that a lot of sort of anti-racist and anti-sexist discourse has sort of the esoteric function of making it easier to control different groups of people. Uh, Like if you import a bunch of foreigners from different countries, and I mean mean high-skilled laborers, I mean like H-1B visa, tech workers especially, when if you have a sort of nativist, and a sort of nationalist political climate in the country, you're not going to get very good work out of those people. So, in a way, a lot of that sort of progressive thought is a way that the state has evolved to control the foreign laborers that it brain drains into the U.S., Mm. and a a kind of secret, a kind of crypto-colonialism, in a way. Mm. Now, this has the trade-off of demoralizing the native population but there's some optimality there for the people who are cashing the checks right. in terms of how much can we demoralize the native population while still brain draining places like India and China. So that's
0: right. the facet of it. Right, that's an interesting hypothesis. And actually, I mean, that model is also consistent with this how, how this language also kind of manipulates and controls the less skilled factions of the native population, if you think about it, because, you know, this kind of idea of solidarity among the poor and, and people of color, and this this kind of being this image of it all being this uh, union of, you know, the, the, the less privileged across the board, it's like, this is really good for like, Google or Apple, who has, um, uh, you know, a, a large number of employees that are not software engineers, but are, you know, customer service representatives, and, um you know people with like humanities degrees who you know in some sense the the like progressive ideologies are kind of just like you said they're 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 a way of actually extracting the most labor from you know uh third world imports but it's also a way of extracting the most labor from the the less able or less privileged of the native population also
1: yes there is a certain sense in which it becomes possible to control private companies by creating high prestige jobs for people who are of low skill. So if you send people to major in something hyphenated studies, if you teach them political correctness, in the sense, they don't have any marketable skills, they can't really produce value, but the legal culture and the social culture that we create allows the state to turn these people into commissars who can then be installed in every private company over a certain size out of necessity in order to dodge liabilities and what it really does it gives you a a, a way for the state to exert a higher level of control inside of private companies
0: mm. that's interesting that, that that's very interesting because I've I've been noticing a lot lately how it seems in in Silicon Valley for instance the the upper levels of management are all pretty on board the woke train and so I've been interpreting that as you know the the upper managers in tech actually quite like the woke ideology for their own control mechanisms it's like it's a management device isn't it but that that's kind of at odds with what you're seeing it as a, as a kind of state centric management device, whereas I've been seeing it more as a kind of, it's it's precisely the the titans of private industry that actually really like this woke ideology, because it um, produces the best morale and productivity from the bulk of its workers, which are not going to be high skilled, you know, high IQ people.
1: The uh, The membrane between private companies and the government is far more
2: porous than mm. I think most of us think of most of the time. Yeah, that could there be- is another factor at play as well, which is that the more sort of authority
1: and power you cede to people that you've imported from other countries, the more the culture itself changes too. And so there is an element of clannishness and nepotism that you do not see with the Native American population. Like, especially conservatives are so frustrating in this regard, the Republicans, who will bend over backwards to show how they've hired their enemy and given them, you know, important sort of position of position of prestige, like, look how honest we are, look how fair we are, look how gracious we are, we will appoint someone whose beliefs are diametrically opposed to ours in a position of authority, we're fair, but that is not at all what happens when you import populations from countries with different tradition and different culture, almost everyone is more clannish than we are, and you get much more nepotism and you get much more sort of racial solidarity. So once you start installing people from a certain background uh, in a position of power, you can expect, you know, it's not not a question of prejudice. I wouldn't paint it with a moral brush. It's simply that when you're playing iterated prisoner's dilemmas, uh, it really, really pays to be tribal.
2: Hmm.
0: Interesting. Yeah. So, yeah. And what you're kind of saying is that there is this weird phenomenon going on in which like white Americans, especially white conservative Americans have kind of agreed to ethnically abolish themselves in in general for the most part. Of course, there's some still some holdouts on that, but it is a rather unique thing. Like m- almost no ethnicity anywhere at any time has ever kind of like so fully Got on board to kind of like agree that its ethnicity doesn't matter and will not be organized around, but like white, like well off white Americans have generally done that. Uh, maybe like for the first time ever in, in this kind of mass sense.
1: There and there are debates about this. A lot of people that I hear and I can't name any sources, just chatter I see, say that in fact many of these things they played out in Rome. but as soon as you have an empire you have to transcend any one sort of nationalism. So perhaps, and I I don't know, I'm not an expert on these things, but there is a certain tendency when people are playing intellectual and upmanship games to say, no, everything that you think is new is not novel at all. Here, let me show you in this 2,000-year-old book, like basically, look, this was the bang Estonia of uh, 1,000 B.C., or something like
0: that. Mm-hmm. Right, okay. Yeah, yeah.
1: I, I don't know. I, I think there is a lot of dicks swinging. It's very hard to know the truth.
0: Right, right, for sure. Yeah, no, it was just, it's it, it an interesting point you were making about iterated prisoners' dilemmas and how, uh, like, tribal and ethnic solidarity is a, a real kind of multiplier for success in, in those types of games. And thinking about, yeah, just, just kind of thinking about how that plays out over time is kind of interesting. Um, so, okay. So what else? Um, there was a question, by the way, what time do you have to go? I think you told me you had limited time. Is All that right?
1: right? I I have another hour here. I feel bad that I was late. So I'm happy
2: to stay on the stream uh, for at least another 30 or 40 minutes, if you like. Sure.
0: Yeah. 30, 40 minutes is fine by me. Um, so there was a question uh, on Twitter that, that, was as follows. Do you have any thoughts about possibilities for left-right coalitions? I don't know if that's referring to something you said before in the past or if that's just a random question, but uh, do you have any thoughts on that?
1: I built a lot of my earlier essays on Twitter on sort of like finding this polarity and this distinction between right and left. And I I still think about this dichotomy. I don't really... Believe that it can be joined. There is such a thing. I I am hesitant to say too much on this topic because it doesn't really align with my beliefs. But there is an idea of a third position. Uh which you may be familiar with.
0: Yeah, people accuse me that of that all the time. <laughs> yes. I, I mean I've never thought like that consciously at all. Um but uh yeah there's this kind of weird thing where like if you're at all honest and open-minded but you're kind of on the left and you just kind of say what you think and you don't really care what people think say about it you'll get called all of these crazy names like oh you're re- justin you're red brown alliance or justin you're a third positionism or and then this weird thing happens where you're kind of like okay you i'll start doing research on into those things <laughs> and then you're kind of like huh okay maybe there's some interesting stuff here i don't know um but it's like i don't know i think there's such a there's such a degeneration of language and the way that people are, are described in ideological terms with such obviously motivated reasoning. It's obviously so much of the labeling is, is disingenuous and for motivated conflictual purposes that um, yeah, that that in today's discourse, like the, the significance or meaning of any particular ideological qualifier like red Brown Alliance or, you know, third positionism or whatever—it's just like uh, words. Words are all just so hollow at this moment that I basically. This is why I'm I'm like only interested in having actual conversations where you can kind of build up from first principles, like what people are actually fucking talking about. So, um, yeah, I mean, what do you have an interest in that, or do you have any takes on that, on third positionism or what it is, or why, or what why we should care about it?
1: I think that basically all labels are meaningless,
2: especially yeah. now. Because yeah because
1: are have you ever are you familiar with the work of uh,
0: uh Guy Debord? Uh So, uh, Yes. Yeah, yeah, so, I am. So the, the thing my big takeaway for that, the thing that really stood out to me is when he says
1: anything that the spectacle ceases to talk about for three days uh doesn't exist. Mm. And I don't think Very many people are conscious of this very often. Maybe it's an idea that a lot of us have noticed. But you can really sort of verify it in your own observation. Just watch on Twitter. Every new story, every new outrage, every new hashtag lasts for three days. So on Wednesday, we started hearing about a cam horse selling her bathwater. It is now Friday. Tomorrow will be the last day that we hear about that. And you can use this three-day arc to predict almost any trend. And one of the things that I... One of the implications of this for me is that no one can really hold on to any ideological alignment for more than three days. That's how long most people supported Andrew Yang. That's how long most people call themselves anything. Because first they go, oh, a new ideology. Yes, the answer has to be in here somewhere. Then... Three days later, the ideology hasn't changed anything for them. It hasn't produced any results for them. They've alienated some friends and possibly gained a few new ones. And, oh, it's been three days. But ideology can't sustain itself in this kind of virtual place, in this vacuum, where none of the opinions you hold actually matter. So that's what I think about third positionism.
2: Hmm.
0: Okay. Interesting. There's someone in the chat who's saying that there's something. There might be something about Lovecraftian horror that is kind of uniquely European, that that appeals in a kind of uh, a kind of right wing inflected European mind. You think there's something to that?
1: Perhaps. Uh, I. So I do believe that different people have substantially different, maybe even unbridgeable phenomenological gaps. I don't think. There's this idea of human neurological uniformity, which I just, I do not think stands up to scrutiny at all. And so it's entirely possible. It's entirely possible that there's something in maybe some variants of European phenomenology that are amenable to Lovecraft. But I don't have any sort of data on that. It's just an intuition. I will say that the Lovecraftian world is actually an extremely rational world. It's an extremely sort of atheistic and scientific world. And all of the horrors in his world are really sci-fi horrors. So in the sense that maybe to the Anglo mind or to the European mind, which is pretty well situated with regard to a rationalist and atheist and enlightenment worldview worldview, is a very sympathetic
0: myth. Hmm. Interesting. There was a question also about who exactly are your fans? Like, would the people that have most admired your work and that follow your work with most uh, sympathy or passion, you know, do you have a sense of what, what your fan base is like? Who they are? What? Who are these people?
1: Actually, I couldn't tell you. I once pulled them and I asked, are you Christian? And 60% said yes. And that was very surprising to me. Perhaps it shouldn't have been. Mm-hmm. Um I noticed that I have some neo-reactionaries, some sort of post-rationalists, some less wrong diaspora, probably some gamer. I don't know. <laughs> I, From the outside, it's very difficult for me to tell. The people that I mostly follow and interact with tend to be people who I think are also interested in a lot of the esoterica that I like. And if I model my audience as them, then my perspective is very distorted. No one, I would bet that the majority of my followers have no idea what it means when I start entreating them to come to Cafe Milano. Do you know, Justin? No, I don't know what that means. Exactly. What is? What does it mean? <laughs> oh, it's a pointless inside joke. Was sort of a. Uh, have you read Jacob? Yeah, Jacobite. Or is it Jacob?
2: Sure.
0: Yes. I yes, used.
1: I have. Um, so you're familiar with? Uh, you broke uh, out. Sort of familiar with who? Mariani and and uh, McCrump and all of those sort of Twitter people.
0: Yeah, uh, actually, Mariani and McCrump have both separately been on this live stream and podcast. Oh, excellent. Well. Someone caught McCrump first posting at a woman and invited her to go to a cafe and it was a meme. Ha. <laughs> That's hilarious. Crump's is actually he's become he's become a J-Murf hater. So I, 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 I relish this story. That's very funny.
1: Yeah, it's it's fun to look into these things. There's a it's amazing how many online personalities sort of make a mockery of themselves by thirsting after
0: Sunny girl. It's very easy to do. I think everyone feels that temptation occasionally. Are you? Uh, are you married or have a long-term partner?
1: Um, I prefer not to talk too much about my personal life, but I am married. Yes.
0: Sure. Yeah. Well, the reason I asked is because I would have guessed that you're married because I actually think it's one of the most significant and effective cleavages in kind of contem- contemporary male online personalities, because basically, I mean, and I have a lot of sympathy for young men who are not yet married, because, you know, society and politics at this moment is such a clusterfuck that like, if I was not married, I would probably find it much harder to actually really figure out what I think and to say it with clarity and honesty, in a non resentful way. Because, um, yeah, getting a mate, if you're a young man today, you know, getting getting a good female mate, is uh, quite a minefield of ideological and social challenges that are just really really thick and and difficult, so you know I actually have a lot of sympathy for people like McCrump's I think he has a girlfriend but uh he's not married uh if I recall correctly uh from when I talked with him but basically I see in the in the style and the attitudes and behaviors of young men who are not married but are like intellectual personalities of one kind or another um they're their, their style and their content is typically much weaker. And I don't think it's their fault. I think they're in like a really tough bind because you have to be a bit of a cuck really to have a chance of like scoring a, you know, educated, hot girl for a partner. So I think um, typically the people that are most interesting right now who are thinking real thoughts and, and putting out uh, consistent, high quality, unique and independently minded content Tend to be um, married men or or people with long term stable partnerships because you just gain um, you gain so much more independence of mind if you have a if you have a good partner who loves you and supports you you can really uh, you know you don't have to mince your words uh, half as much as these people who are in the mating market do have you noticed this
1: I th- yes I think that forming a uh, lifelong pair bond is the most important thing in the world until you do it and then. Ideally, if you've done it properly, then all the energy that you were spending on that, which is is tremendous—I mean, it's it's most of your mental
2: energy—is
1: suddenly freed up for other things. And I wouldn't say that content is always weaker. It's when you're single, you're more foolhardy, and you're more malleable, and uh, you know you may you may have to change very rapidly sometimes. And I notice also that a lot of people who have strong convictions, when they find a partner, They immediately relax those convictions. Like the convictions were a posture, they were kind of a a sexual display in many cases. And I also think you have to be very careful what sexual displays you're making. And I don't just mean like, you know, uh, showing your muscles on Twitter. I mean anything, anything from like the words you say, the friends you have can be a kind of sexual display. And if you do that and you attract a woman, you know, with a certain advertisement, then whether it's whether it's being a fascist or a uh you know pseudo intellectual or whatever else it is a bodybuilder you can't stop being that thing once Mm. once you are paired to her once you're joined to her like you made a contract essentially an implicit one you said i am this this is what you're getting and if you stop doing that if you if you renege on the deal then uh It's it's not unreasonable to think that she would also be dissatisfied. Mm.
0: That's an interesting point. Although I would say if you're lucky in an ideal case, and it it definitely is possible. I I don't know how rare it is, uh, but it it definitely is possible. And I'm very grateful and and lucky to say that this was the case with me. In in an ideal case, you can actually grow with your wife and change. So you might have sold yourself um, as a certain bill of goods got married and then, you know, genuinely grow and genuinely change your mind. And if you have a healthy relationship and, and, you know, you're, you're, you're cl- you communicate clearly and frankly, um, you know, you can, you can weather, uh, significant ideological changes. Like I, when I married my wife, we were both pretty hardcore social justice warriors. And I like, I won my wife's, you know, um, devotion in in large part from, you know, significant displays of. Of, you know uh social justice uh investment and 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 we got married and you know we both uh, kind of learned a lot of, about the errors of our ways and and a lot of the you know we we both kind of realized we were drinking some pretty toxic kool-aid and so we we both had to you know i kind of started the process a bit i think it's fair to say but i basically had to i i, I was basically walking back a lot of the stuff that i did kind of sell her on and to her credit you know she heard me out, and she, um, you know, kind of understood, and ultimately came to agree. So, you know, there, there, there's definitely the possibility of authentic growth and change with a partner.
1: That's interesting. I mean, I've experienced a couple of ideological shifts uh, in my life, and I think it's so delicate in a way. But if your if your relationship is sort of properly polarized, then in most cases there may be some tension, uh, mm. your wife should follow you, right? Like, that's uh, that's a very important facet of marriage. And a lot of people take this the wrong way. They think that the idea that a man should lead and a woman should follow is really, that uh, it diminishes the woman. And uh, I don't think that's true at all. They think some kind of ego thing or some kind of superiority. But what this is, is it's a very shallow conception of power. Mm-hmm. I think that leftists in general, and you can't when you paint with a broad brush, right? But leftists in general have a very shallow conception of power because power, although is authority, it is it is control in order for power to be sustainable in order for it to have integrity with itself in the future. Power is very much a form of service. Power is very much a form of caring for sort of the people. again, I think the use of the word below, although it is the right word, is a word that is loaded for many people and they can't handle this idea of having people below you. but If you've ever had authority, if you've ever you know been the boss, if you've got a startup or even just been a, a manager, uh, at a company, anything like that, you quickly realize that the role of the person in authority is—it's uh, a tremendous amount of investment in the outcomes of the people that you're responsible for. Mm. And this, I think, is is the other is a big disconnect: is that you have this, if you have a shallow conception of power. You think it's about being a bully. You think it's about sort of being a fat cat. But the, the exact opposite is true. Um, mm. power that acts like that quickly implodes, quickly self-destructs, it burns all of its uh, right. everything that could sustain it very
0: rapidly it's an interesting point and I think it's also not for nothing that people who have the former attitude towards power that you described basically no one wants to be beneath anyone else and especially people who think this way about uh, sexual and romantic relationships like men who don't want to have any power over a woman and women who refuse to entertain the possibility of having less power than a man, those types of people, men and women, tend to be the ones who are least likely to have a happy relationship. I mean, that's the way it looks to me. It's like, those are the people who are like single until they're, you know, uh, well into their 40s and uh, never have kids and find themselves quite lost late in life, I think. I mean, that's somewhat anecdotal, but I think... You know, I I have a pretty large ethnographic database that I feel like is consistent with that uh, correlation. No, you're you're very right. I think
1: that uh, what our culture has done, what our society has done, is it has totally obscured all of the the sort of recipes or the formulas for finding happiness with a person of the opposite sex. And so, in order to be successful in the dating market, in order to to find boyfriend, or a girlfriend, or a wife, or a husband, you literally have to rediscover patriarchy on your own, and it's almost like a coming-of-age ritual, and it's why we have pickup artists. It's it's a bunch of men rediscovering patriarchy that was completely hidden from them, and they were told, oh, this is wrong and bad, and then they had to realize, no, look, it's not It's not walking up to a girl and asking, oh, do you believe in magic spells, or... To you, who, who lies more, men or women? Like these are these are magician tricks, you know, in the early pickup artist scene. But what what those men discovered, what that ideology discovered as it evolved, was actually none of this. None of this is is what is it. We thought that our little routines and our little models were causing women to like us, but in fact, it was because they accidentally.
0: Reverse-engineered patriarchy. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I thinking about my own experience. I have to admit, there's a little bit of truth to that. I mean, my wife is still, you know, substantially a, a feminist to some degree. But when we really kind of realized the like the toxic Kool Aid we were both kind of drunk on, and how it was really actually harming our relationship and our ability to simply have happy, functional life we we both basically walked back a lot of the the dumber kind of like feminist tenets. And it's, it, you know, it's quite consistent with what you're saying. Like we basically did uh, become, we learned to accept and be comfortable with certain, yeah, somewhat patriarchal norms uh, because th- those those norms are, you know, they did evolve for a reason and you might not like them, but they actually can make life easier and happier and better for both parties involved. And, you know, I think it, it is just a awkward fact that, The people that are most rabidly allergic to allowing anything that looks like patriarchal structures into their lives are usually the ones who are, they they seem to be like uh, the ones who are hitting themselves the hardest over and over again and like preventing any type of like stable, happy relationship from emerging. So I think that's not for nothing.
1: Yeah. So I I don't want to derail this, but one of your subscribers paid $2 to ask if I have read Nagel left case for open board
0: Thank you. I was I was getting to that. I, w- I wasn't going to forget. Yes, thank you very much, uh, Mr. Zika for the $2 super chat. And yes, that's great. Let's talk about that. So what do you think?
1: Or have you read it? Um, I, I'm sorry to disappoint your subscriber. I have never read this book. Uh, it might be an interesting ideological touring test to try to guess what it says. I don't know if I know enough about Nagel.
0: So, I can tell you real quick, I mean, I read it um, I can tell you real quick it's it's not very controversial. It's kind of uh basically what it sounds like. She's basically saying, uh, hey people, I hate to tell you this, but if you want socialism or even just a more robust welfare state, it might be somewhat in tension with uh unlimited open borders that that's essentially what her her argument yes,
1: that's, is that's obvious. I mean Bernie yeah.
0: Sanders
1: was talking about closing the borders for a hot minute there before the woke coalition found him in a dark room and said hey man that's not how we do things anymore
0: yeah exactly so um i mean if the if the person asking wants to know my opinion also i mean i think it's a she was making a pretty straightforward point which is very reasonable and uh yeah i mean from what i recall she doesn't even necessarily come down very hard on anything it's not like she's finishes the essay with we must close all borders to all foreigners or something like that. Um, I think the point is, is a, is a, a a strong one and, and needs to be grappled with? I mean, I think that there is a just genuine, um, lack of intellectual seriousness on the radical open borders left. I mean, I think, uh, the people that are just like absolute knee jerk, anyone who wants to come in the country should be free to come into the country. Uh, Honestly, I think there's actually a lot of arguments for that. Uh, e- surprisingly, from a right-wing perspective, right, there are kind of uh, libertarian economists, right, who say, "Yeah, open all the borders, absolutely. We should do that on kind of free market principles." So there's there's a weird note of that. That's just to say that it's actually not a it's not a totally crazy argument. It probably is in the long run net welfare improving. It's probably it's probably you know uh, Pareto optimal probably in the long run for everyone around the globe too open all borders, there's a good rational case to be made for it. But the leftists who make that, who who want radical open borders, um, I just don't think they make any, I don't think they make sense. I think their web of beliefs uh, is not very like well worked out. And I, frankly, I think that the people, the left wing people who call for and clamor for just absolute unlimited open borders, they're actually doing a different type of politics. Like they're, they, they, they don't have a kind of formal, uh, overarching, coherent politics. And they're not interested in that. They've never really been trying to build that. They have a set of, um, they have moral taste buds kind of in like a Jonathan Haidt model. They have, they have strong tastes for certain things like compassion. And then they just kind of, uh, pronounce their position on various hot button issues in a kind of, uh, way that's never fully logically integrated. That's not part of the politics that they're doing. They just basically, um, Cater to whatever kind of ethical or moral passion they feel possessed by in a, in a moment. So they'll say, "We absolutely must allow anyone through the borders into America that wants to or needs to come." Um, and how that actually uh, factors into their other felt beliefs, they 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 don't see that as a worthwhile uh, task, you know. And then they and they would actually, you know, these are often postmodern types of people who would, if you press them on that. They would say this is you just using bourgeois ideology and uh logocentrism to kind of like defend the status quo or something like this.
2: I
1: don't don't have substantial disagreement with that. Um, a couple thoughts I have on that question. One, um, you're probably aware that left and right, although it's far from a perfect mapping, do. Lightly correlate to male and female, uh, irrespectively. So in some sense, in some sense, leftism is a feminine mindset and rightism is a masculine mindset in some sense. It's, it's far from total, mm-hmm. clearly. And, uh, you, there's another idea that mostly the people who we are clamoring to let into the U S borders tend to be dangerous men. So. There's a piece of cynicism that goes around in dissident right circles that basically what this is, is the men at home are too weak and the thirst for immigration is literal thirst for dangerous men to come in and sort of right that wrong. Wow. I think that's overly reductive, but I also think it's very funny.
0: Yeah, that's dark. I've I've heard that before, too. I've also, you know, you, you hear sometimes like I think actually Jordan Peterson has floated this idea, right? That the um that the feminists kind of silence on the, the patriarchal nature of radical Islam, for instance, is a kind of a kind of yearning to be dominated or something like this.
1: Yes. And so the thought experiment is if all of the people we were trying to import into the country with our open borders, were Southeast Asian women would the right
0: and left position on immigration completely flip? Mm, that is a I, that is an interesting question. Like mm. suppose it wasn't
1: a bunch of dangerous men from the Middle East. Suppose it was, and that's a very broad brush. Most Middle Eastern men are not dangerous, but some, a few are, right? Yeah. But uh, suppose instead it was like uh, all Vietnamese women.
0: Yeah, or like, just, or like super, super hot, like white East Eastern European women, like Melania Trump. Imagine if that, if that's the type of yes. women who are like coming into America on Moss. Yeah, it is an interesting question. I'm like, fully would,
1: in favor of open borders for women from Kazakhstan. Let that be known. Why is that? Well, I mean, I'm just saying, like Eastern European women, man.
0: Ah, uh, I see. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah no, no, that's a really women from Kazakhstan do it. That is an interesting question. Yeah. So, okay. So uh, the only other kind of item on the agenda that I thought we should try to hit before, before we wrap this baby up is that uh, some people were curious about the, the big uh, like autism competition thing that he did. Do you want to tell us about that? And what, what, what was, what were you doing
1: there? You know, I, I just sort of had, I had posted something about, uh, a, a girl had posted a, a tweet about women with autism, and I sort of shit-posted about it, and I said, you know, women can't let men have anything, not even autism, uh, like to themselves, right? They have to deterritorialize that. So I made that tweet, and like I said, it, a lot of the things you say are post-ironic. That means they you're kind of leaning way over the thing you authentically believe. Uh-huh so uh based on some of the the feedback from that i thought wouldn't it be funny if we had an autism competition and as a joke i think that was interesting and entertaining but then i decided to kind of monomaniacally follow through on it and actually do it mm-hmm. and doing that is much less interesting than speculating about it, and it almost felt like a breach of contract To the people who enjoy
0: my normal writing. So what did you? What did you learn in the process, or what was it? What was how? How would you describe it? What was the takeaway?
1: I don't think there was anything to learn. Uh, It's the spectacle thing again. Yeah. If the competition had taken three days, everyone would have been cool with it. (laughs) But it took two weeks. And and who won? Who won? That was someone named Fodcorp. Who promised us 3D testosterone, and apparently has a pretty good physique.
0: Okay, I mean, all these like all of these Twitter bros who supposedly have good physique, like, how do you actually know? I don't. Like, I don't. I don't really trust any of. Like, especially because we're all we're almost always dealing with avatars who don't show any pictures of themselves, and I'm supposed to believe they're like these like buff studs. I mean, why do you? Why do? Has anyone believe that?
1: 100% of my mutuals are ripped, uh, you know, Aryan gods. I guarantee it.
0: Do you exchange, like, real pictures of yourselves in private? Uh, no. So how no. do you know?
1: No, listen. We're post-truth in this assertion. You know, my feelings don't care about your facts. I see. I see. Well, I
0: mean, it's, in a sense, you're right, because... <laughs> The spectacle is obviously much more powerful. Um, you know, I, I I speak with a lot of people who are absolutely convinced that Bronze Age pervert, for instance, is, you know, like a super jacked, you know, handsome, muscular man. And maybe, but I mean, I have no reason to believe that uh, whatsoever. I just have, I mean, there's just no evidence, right? So, um, but but you are right that, you know, um, the spectacle has its own logic and people do get pulled in whether there's evidence or not. So it, it's kind of, it, it is kind of interesting. I do wonder if all of these like buff theory bros on Twitter are actually just like a bunch of twinks. <laughs> uh, that's dark. That's, that's part hor- That's horrorism for you.
1: That is horrorism. Um, before we wrap it up, I, I kind of, two things. I don't really want to end on that. <laughs> okay. And, uh, someone in the chat did ask a question I think on Twitter maybe and brought it up that they asked about the future of art so maybe we could briefly talk about that
0: just just a little bit just yeah. to end on a slightly higher note yeah yeah that's great so we can do that well maybe before that then I'll, I'll get in just one quick thing about this uh, yeah, please, less please. less savory topic I mean are you would you identify as autistic or Aspie? no no not remotely
1: okay. I mean okay uh, part of me there was a Contbot article about this that was deleted because he said some forbidden words. Um, there is such a thing as autism. There are real autistic people who like hurt themselves and who just radically lack uh, some of the mental models that everyone else has. But in the main, I think that the way that the term autism is used and the way it's diagnosed has been expanded to sort of condemn. A lot of people who really are exhibiting very normal behaviors and very normal ways of thinking Hmm. and the the definition of pathology itself is really quite political and quite nebulous and any category breaks down if you try to over examine it so it's silly to say
0: fair enough yeah uh, of the people that were in your competition how many of them do you think are actually aspie
1: oh i could not venture to guess uh, probably all of them and none of them it's the distance between your online persona and your actual self
0: so i actually didn't ask you this straight up but i guess you you do you identify as a, what you would call a neo-reactionary
1: Labels are pretty stupid mm-hmm. these days. I think all of the heat has gone from that label. It it doesn't mean anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, a label that isn't able to filter itself is a useless label. Mm. If There's some football somewhere of neo reactionaries. I'm not part of it. Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. If anyone goes online and calls themselves that, who can really dispute it? Right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, people call me that
0: all the time, and I've never, like, sought that or identified with that personally. So, yeah, I guess you're right. It's just, not on, it, at a certain point, it doesn't even make sense to bother trying to use the terms. I, I, I'm sympathetic i sympathetic to that. Have, yeah,
1: I have read all of the writings of Mendes Moldbug. I think that many facets of his analysis are correct. Mm. I think that some of them are lacking.
0: I think that some of them felt very reasonable at the time, and now don't. Uh, I would endorse his writing. Anyway. Right. Okay. Well, I mean, I'm quite a fan of Moldbug's writings, and I'm I'm still like generally the the overall drift of my politics still is is rather left wing on the whole. So you know, I think even even having a, a certain predilection for the writings of Menschus Moldbug isn't even a very like clear test of neo reactionism necessarily. But uh, yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, it's probably best to just Forego the labels and uh, just have conversations and, and go on a case by case basis about various topics and you know I guess that's kind of the abiding philosophy of the show anyway. Um, so okay, cool. The so only lo- time you manufacture
1: a label is when you're trying to rally people around a specific mm.
0: action. Yeah, it's a good point. Yeah, so if you're not trying to mobilize for some strategic, instrumental, political purpose, then you, you're you right. There's not really much of a need or value for uh, very, various kinds of labels. So cool. Let's talk about the future of art. Uh, tell tell us, uh,
1: Zero, what is the what is the future yes. of art? I will now prognosticate, but not really. I don't know what the future of art is. I recently wrote. I don't think anyone does. I think it's it'd be foolish to to claim that you did. But I did write a little bit about uh, David Foster Wallace yesterday, and sort of hit idea of new sincerity. And you may be familiar with this because. In the 90s, there was this idea that everything is super detached, super hip, super ironic. No one takes anything seriously. And the sort of crux of that, of the argument in the essay, is that uh, art had previously used irony and satire as ways of deconstructing dominant cultural paradigms, but that uh, a culture which is self referentially aware. Of irony and detachment, which sort of makes that its uh, its cornerstone, cannot be deconstructed using ironic devices, and that television uh, sort of uniquely was built on irony and subsumed irony, so that irony couldn't be used against it, and uh, that was true in the '90s. But what he predicted was that the the backlash to that would be this sort of cloying uh one note single entendre sincerity and that i don't know if he coined the term or later it was called new sincerity and wallace and uh, a lot of the sort of writers who came after him are noteworthy for this and i think our discourse our political discourse uh has also become kind of coyingly sincere so this poses a problem for art Because all of the institutional art, all of the art that is made by, you know, machines of of capital and whatnot, they have uh, made no way to process this. When they write sincerely, you just get these sort of sanctimonious screeds where, like, the black lesbian vampire, you know, interacts with the transgendered werewolf and everyone's deeply, deeply oppressed and they cry. And that's the whole story. And like that's that's what sincerity gets you when it, art is being manufactured by these giant corporate machines. Mm. So, in order to to break free of that, what you need is outsiders. I believe that. I think the only meaningful art today has to be written ha- or has to be produced by people who are outside of the apparatus of the the woke apparatus that. You know the sort of culture industrial complex, if you like. Um, mm. I think most of the interesting art that we see these days is being made by people on the internet who have no connection to the machine, right? But maybe that's always been true. Maybe that was true of punk as well. Maybe maybe it just becomes
0: co-opted. Yeah, that that's an interesting point because I think I agree with a lot of that. It sounds cogent. I think what might be kind of unique now is that it's hard to imagine how the co-option takes place. You know, like there have always been outside artists and then once they get big enough, they get basically bought off by the institutions. We'll just give them enough money, whatever, you know, whatever the price that's necessary to get them to sell out and basically buy into the system or whatever you want to call it. But now it's like, it seems like the, the centrifugal tendencies are so strong and also the institutionalized just kind of decay just the the absolute kind of death of life that seems to be characteristic of almost all mainstream institutions today seems to be so so strong and terminal that I, I sometimes wonder I, I sometimes wonder if we're at a turning point where the near future of, of art is like the outside artists you're right will become the only real site of, of genuine uh, creativity worth paying attention to. But that now, actually, there's not really any mechanisms for the institutions to, to buy them out, uh, to, to, yeah. to, co- to co-opt yeah, them. Right. It's- so
1: the, the outside art that we see now, especially, you know, from the dissident right, which is clearly where I'm looking, that art is not something that can be co-opted because it's not digestible right. by the big business. If you look at Sam Hyde, million-dollar mm-hmm. extreme, uh... You know, it was very popular. Everyone liked it. It was on Cartoon Network late night,
0: and it was canceled because it was ideologically uh, untenable to them. Mm. Yeah, that's a really good example. Yeah, you're right. It's like. It
1: wasn't ideological. Like, it went at
0: all, very, very minorly, you know? No, but I think you're right. There's something happening where the outside art is going to be just uh, profoundly and irredeemably uh, just incommensurate with, yeah, even understanding. You're right. It's almost like, it's almost like before ideological opposition, it's actually just a kind of uh, sheer incomprehension of the various different norms in, in like the subcultures that produce this kind of stuff. And um, yeah, so it's, it's actually a really interesting and important point, because if that is true, that the out, that outside art is going to be the only site of real creativity worth paying attention to. And I'm right that, there's something new going on where the institutions are uniquely incapable of bringing that outside art in, then what's, what's actually really interesting and difficult about that is it's going to right now, people's perceptions are very scrambled because people still expect that if there's good art being done on the outside, it's going to eventually get brought into the institutions. They're eventually going to see it in the museums or whatever, but actually that might not happen this time moving forward. And so people need to, and I think this is actually happening. People are realizing that. And so people are starting to realize that, like, if they want good, really live, radical, creative, you know, true, truly creative stuff, they, they have to go to the fringes themselves and become a part of what they are interested in. And yeah, I, I think that actually might be happening now to some degree, but a lot of people still have their eyes on the center. A lot of people are still, you know, like uh, imagining or dreaming that, you know, the, the mainstream institutions are going to find a way to open up to, to these like different currents, but I think they're waiting in vain.
1: Yeah, it's not going to happen. At least not until everyone involved turns over. There's a pretty famous anecdote, um, I think, well I hear it a lot anyway, that in you know the 60s, in the 50s, the sort of executives running show, they'd see a music act that uh, they didn't understand whether it was some kind of metal or you know, progressive rock, something weird, something outside of their own taste, and they go, Well, I don't like this, I don't get this. If it's what the kids like, I'll try to sell it. But now, uh, once sort of like the boomers came of age, and maybe even the millennials are the exact same way, let me piss off everyone involved. Millennials and boomers are the same, and they think they have good taste. Taste pink when they see a new piece of art for that's outside their model that if it's shit, that they're right. They're like, Oh yeah, this, the kids don't like this. Fuck the kids. I'm right. (laughs) There's a meme about that too. And so it makes it very hard for, for good art to come in because these people think they're the arbiters of taste and they're not, they're locked in this narrow little channel.
0: Right. Right. It's a good point. Yeah. Someone in the chat makes a really good point, which I really like and strongly agree with is that uh, the, countercultures, the countercultures don't realize how good their hand is and aren't doubling down hard enough. I could not, I could not agree no. more with that. I mean, that's why... They, they have one problem, though, which
1: is payment processing. Mm. Anything gets too good, we've seen. There is someone shadowy behind the scenes who's able to push all the buttons and pull all the levers. And suddenly, make all the payment processors stop giving them money. So, I don't believe the counterculture can truly triumph until someone with power controls a payment processor that is sympathetic to them, and that we do not see yet.
0: But hasn't that only really been a problem for a very small number of like super big creators? Like for the for the for the, for the larger mass of like you know uh, moderately internet famous. Like edgy figures, sending
1: a message is what it is. Like uh, Google fired James Damore. There are thousands and thousands, maybe many more than that, James Damore's at Google. But you don't have to fire all of them. Mm -hmm. You just have to fire one really, really violently, and everyone else knows what's happening, right? Right. And I think it's the same thing with uh, with this situation.
0: I don't know. I mean, I wonder if, um, I mean, your point is well taken uh, and I'm not, I'm certainly not dismissing it, but my sense is that you can be like a a moderately internet famous kind of reactionary leaning type of creator of some kind. And you know, like Patreon, Patreon isn't going to notice you really. Right. I mean, there's lots of people like that, I think, isn't there?
1: Uh, eh, yes and no. So one of your commenters scream is completely right. If you go to a party and uh, start dropping these esoteric Twitter po- talking points, no one even knows how to hear them. And you can have a really fun time if you know a bunch of strangers and you don't have to worry about them remembering you, uh, you know, trying to argue with them about even any many of the things that we're talked about on this show. If there's not anyone, if there's not a TV show about it, if there's not a documentary, if there's not, uh, you know, a sitcom, embodies a particular idea, many people just they can't even hear it. They don't even know how to argue it, argue against it or for it. It's just outside.
0: Right, but who cares about house parties? Like house parties are for
2: kids. Not even they're house, lame. Parties.
1: house parties is a bad example. Okay. Go to a bar, go to your coworkers. You can't go to your coworkers, but right. try it. You know, like try it with people who aren't extremely online.
0: Right. But what all I'm saying is that the whole like IRL world is of secondary importance, right? I mean who cares? Like, who cares? If, like, who cares if normies don't know anything about it? Like, all that matters is like if you have a, a certain minimum threshold of internet audience and attention, right? That, I mean, that's really that—that's just all that matters. I feel like today.
1: Well, yeah, if, if you can convert it into money, I mean, th- this is the question: Is the counterculture of the right uh, effectively using its resources in the cultural arena? Hmm. I, I honestly, I don't know. Mm. Like everything else, like whatever other, like on the ground is a sideshow to how do you even answer the question? Mm. Maybe there's some genius of culture who has a plan, who has a strategy, and will explode. And maybe not. Maybe it'll all just sort of get filtered away by algorithms.
0: Well, but can't you just imagine the the cultures growing and like, and not just the right wing cultures, but just all kind of dissident, unorthodox, eccentric? uh fringe cultures, can't you just imagine them progressively growing and uh monetization becoming more normal? And I, I think the real motor for this would be right now there are a lot of eyeballs that are still stuck on like network TV for some stupid reason and stuff like like the the, the migration of eyeballs and, and and attention and and consumer money moving away from mainstream institutions into niche internet subcultures has only just begun. I mean, that's a massive pocketbook that is going to be increasing every year. And so couldn't even just that alone over the next few years make it increasingly financially sustainable for very fringe subcultures to uh, actually produce and sustain a a wide variety of creators in in a serious way? Do you not see that happening? Because that's kind of my sense of things.
1: I think that's the optimistic case. I want that to be true. I'm not really equipped at this moment to argue for or against it. But maybe by temperament, I am eternally pessimistic.
0: Okay, fair enough. Well, this was a, definitely an interesting exchange, and and some some good hypotheticals about the future of of culture. Um, I want to warn you that my phone is getting low on battery. It shouldn't cut us off like in the next thirty or sixty seconds, but uh, just in case it does, I'm warning you. Um, I feel like we covered a lot of ground, and this was and this was very good. I feel like I'm happy to just uh, let you go now, unless there's anything you else you wanted to sneak in before we
1: call it a day. Um, I'm going to answer a few questions that I've been ignoring in the side chat. But first, I'm going to say thank you so much for having me on. It's been a pleasure. Uh, Great talking to you. Yeah, it was great. I've never read John Michael Greer's Lovecraft-themed fiction. I enjoy the works of Julius Evola, but I have not read them in depth. And uh, I think those were the main two. Sorry, guys. Feel free to DM me
0: if you'd like to talk about those things. My DMs are open. My question to you, perhaps my final question would be, when does the uh, Zero HP book come out? There are two books that I have
1: in the works. One of them uh, is a three, it sort of has three major arcs, and I'm just finishing the second one, so hopefully uh, well before the end of the year, I'm shooting for a Halloween release of my next work. The third work is notes and plans, but will probably take me at least another six months after that.
0: Okay. Awesome. Awesome. Well I think this is kind of be I think this is currently going to be the kind of the spearhead of radical independent subcultures becoming more kind of financially viable. I think self publishing books is only really starting to kick off in terms of its, you know, prevalence and, and popularity. And I think that's going to be I think you're going to see more and more of this. So uh I'm glad to hear that. Cool. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. Thanks you for talking. Uh, th- 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 thanks for joining and uh, going through all the uh, technical challenges to, to make this happen. And uh, it, was, it was very interesting talking with you. So thanks again. Cool. All right. I'll thanks. let you go then. I'll see you on the internet. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm glad that came together. I was skeptical that we would pull it off. Thanks everyone for hanging out as always. Then thanks for your patience. Unfortunately, I'm sure there were a lot of like, HP Lovecraft fans who uh, were here and ready to roll at the beginning, who probably jetted off when it looked like it wasn't going to happen. So to all of those people who are watching this later after it's archived, sorry about that. And uh, yeah, thanks for all the really good questions from everyone. I appreciate that. And also thanks for all the super chats. Uh, that was really nice of you all. And uh, it's really awesome when, you know, I spend an hour or two hours doing these conversations and I walk away from the table with, you know, I think today it was what, like, almost a hundred bucks. Was it? Um, very, very grateful for that. It's awesome. It definitely is very inspiring to make me do more of these with cooler and more, even more interesting people as we go. So yeah, very grateful. Thank you for hanging out. Uh, that was quite a long time. So my brain is probably starting to decelerate as it were. Um, I think I should probably wrap it up. Uh, if you haven't done so already, please do subscribe to the channel, like the video, you know, all that crap that YouTubers tell you to do. Leave a reply if you have any comments or whatever. And uh, big thanks to my patrons as always. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you thought that was cool, then don't forget to subscribe. And it would be even cooler if you left a review. I'd appreciate that. And yeah, just to learn more about what I'm up to, you can check out theotherlifenow.com. That's all. And I will see you around the internet.